Hans Christian Andersen once wrote a, a fairy tale called The Emperor's New Clothes. You might be familiar with the story. It's about a king who loved to dress ostentatiously. He was always on the lookout for newer and fancier clothes. Well, two con men come along claiming that they can make the fanciest clothes in the world. The wisest and wealthiest people can even see them. If you're poor or dumb, uh, those clothes will be invisible to you. <laughs> well, the king, of course, he can't see these new clothes, but he happily puts them on uh, rather than admit to being too dumb to see them. And then he parades through the kingdom with nothing on. <laughs> And all of the kingdom, everyone comes out and they're cheering and applauding and complimenting the king's new wardrobe. Nobody wants to be seen as poor or dumb. Until finally a little child blurts out what everybody else is thinking. The kid says, but he isn't wearing anything. Now, there are probably a lot of morals to a story like that. I think at least one of the morals to the story is that no matter, no matter how many people buy into a lie, the truth is still the truth. The truth doesn't change no matter how many people oppose it. And, and this is really one of the more powerful things about your Bible. What we believe about the Bible, it's the Word of God. And because it's the Word of God, it is a standard of truth, the standard of truth, that cuts across all of our other beliefs and assumptions and even what our culture believes. So, so, for example, if I come to the conclusion that my highest aim in life, the greatest thing I can do, is seek my own happiness and my own fulfillment, I'll have no trouble finding support for that belief. There are a lot of people who believe that way and live that way. Books are written about it, movies are made, music is made all about that. But if I come to the Bible, Jesus, when Jesus spoke of the highest aim, the greatest commandment in life, he said it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The truth of the word of God cuts across that belief, that assumption. I can't live with an aim for myself if I'm also going to follow Jesus. Right? The word of God challenges that assumption, that belief. Um, so, you know, part of the daily challenge of being a Christian is, is just allowing God's truth to serve as our standard, that God would transform how we think and how we live according to his word, which means our beliefs, our assumptions, our culture, those things are temporary. They're fallible. But God's word is eternal, and it's perfect. Now, we're going to see today in James chapter 1, I think a perfect example of this, how God's word contradicts our natural beliefs and assumptions and even our culture uh, in wonderful ways and in painful ways. I think we'll see them both. Uh, Y'all, in the early part of chapter 1, what we looked at last week, in chapter 1, verses uh, 2 through 8, James talks about having joy in the midst of trials. That in itself cuts across our beliefs and our assumptions, right? Joy in the midst of trials because trials act as our testing, a testing of our faith. We are purified through that test, through that struggle, and God gives us the wisdom to live it out. Okay? That's, that's basically what we saw last week. Well, here in verse 9 of chapter 1, James actually gives us two 
practical forms of trial. He's going to get a little more specific here. He picks two things out out of the many things I guess he could have chosen. He picks out one very obvious trial and then one that, that really is more surprising. James is going to show us today the obvious trial of poverty and the surprising trial of wealth and how God's wisdom navigates through them both. So look with me at James chapter 1 verse 9. He says, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. The brother of humble circumstances, basically that refers to a Christian who is poor, who lacks the world's means. Y'all, James, James is writing to Christians who have been scattered abroad. We see that in verse 1. What's probably happened is that these Christians in the early church, they've been, they've been pushed out to the margins, maybe as persecution for their faith. And so they, they're away from their homeland. They're away from their sources of income. Most of them probably would have been poor as a result. They may have been poor to begin with, but certainly they struggle now. And yet, James says, this person ought to glory in his high position. To glory means to take pride, uh, to boast about possessions and about privileges. Uh, How is this possible? What could James possibly mean? Clearly, he's talking to people who have nothing in their possession to their name that they would boast about. But that's the point. James is saying your earthly reality is no reflection of your true and spiritual reality. Those two are not the same. Um, When the Apostle Paul spoke about salvation, which he often did, one of the places where Paul defines and describes what it means to be a Christian comes from Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to listen to how Paul terms this because it really fills in what James is saying here. This is Ephesians 2, verse 4. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says to become a Christian is to enter in to the infinite wealth of God, the riches of his mercy and grace and kindness freely given to unworthy sinners thanks to the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. That's how he describes what it means to be saved. It's not just getting to heaven. It's not even just the forgiveness of sins. It's all the riches of God's love and mercy and kindness bestowed upon us forever. Now, I I mentioned this uh, last week that the dominant culture of the day, the day in which James is writing, The dominant culture believed that if you were poor, it's because God was mad at you. 
if you suffered, if you struggled in this present material world, that was a sign of divine displeasure. God or the gods, whatever the belief was, you must have done something wrong to deserve your lot in life, and that's why these bad things are happening to you. That's why you're so low on the social ladder. But James comes along and says, no, boast in your high position. Boast in what Christ has given you. Uh, Irrespective of your physical material reality, you possess a, a treasure that this world can't touch. Your earthly poverty has no bearing on your true possession and your true position. If you belong to Christ, then you are rich indeed. Jesus said of himself, I came to preach good news to the poor. And did he ever? Your earthly status is uh, of, of no esteem in the eyes of God. If you are low in the eyes of the world, God by his grace will raise you up high through faith in Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful promise. Now, it would be nice if we could stop right here and stack up the chairs and go home. But there's another side to this coin that James has to inform us on. And frankly, it's a more uncomfortable, more painful reality. Look at verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Now before we explain this text, we have to acknowledge that most of us fall into this category. Um, Whenever I see the Bible give warnings about wealth, I always try to slither out from underneath that conviction. As if this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not rich. I shop at the outlet mall. I drive a Honda. I'm not rich. But y'all, here's the truth. By the world's standards, I am rich. I have more than what is sufficient for my needs. And that's true for most of us. Most of us, we don't want to take scriptures like this seriously. We don't want to deal with the conviction. And so we convince ourselves that this doesn't apply to us, but it does. It does. And so we've got to look into this and let it speak to the realities of our heart and our life. What does James mean when he says the rich person is to glory in his humiliation? Well, he's not saying you should be ashamed of yourself for having money as if money is of itself some evil thing and you're wrong if you possess it. And that's not the point. What James is doing, he's simply showing us a contrast. Remember, the poor person has a low earthly position. But the gospel of Jesus raises him up high. His esteem is found in Jesus, not in his poverty. Well, by contrast, the rich person has a high earthly position, and therefore the gospel of Jesus has to bring him or her low. It has to humble us. Does that mean that the the poor get a different salvation than the rich? No. It's the same gift of grace for all people, but the rich have more to lose. 
Those who are rich in this present world have more to lose. I mean, think about this. Money, y'all listen, money doesn't just buy groceries. Money, if we're willing to be honest, money buys power and influence and image and esteem and comfort and the inclusion into social circles that we want to be a part of. Money buys us a lot of things that are not always tangible and material. And those things shape our identity. We can't help it. If you have the world's means, your identity is shaped by your reality. But y'all, to turn to Jesus, to turn to Christ in faith, requires up front, first and foremost, that I have to admit I have nothing at all that God will accept. This is incredibly difficult for a person of worldly means, that when we come to Jesus, we have to confess and admit that we have nothing. No pedigree, no diploma on the wall, no earnings potential. God accepts none of those things as spiritual currency. The esteem of the world gets us nowhere with God. We have to confess our sin and our utter need for grace, and that is humiliating to a person who sees themselves as sufficient, as competent, as wealthy. And what's more, if you want to follow Christ, the scripture says we have to renounce wealth as our identity. We die to the old self. That's not just the old specific sins of our past, but we die to the old identity, the way that we try to define ourselves apart from God. You die to the old self and you are raised up with Christ in a new life, a new identity that is not um, reflected in your material wealth. That's not God's concern here when he saves you. Um, we've got to renounce the old identity. What we were is no longer what we are. Now, do you, can you see why Jesus would say, it is so very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's hard. Not because it's hard for God to save us, but it's hard for the wealthy person. Because in our estimation, we've got so much to lose in this deal. To confess that we have nothing that God will accept, to renounce wealth as our identity, that's a lot to lose. And so when we come back to James's command, he says the rich person, the rich Christian, is to glory in his humiliation, to boast in that? How do we do that? Well, it happens when we recognize the futility of wealth in contrast to the surpassing value of Christ. That we don't just, you know, swallow our pride and submit to Jesus, oh, it's terrible that I've got to renounce my old identity. No. James says, delight in being brought down low. Because of what you get in its place, you get Christ. That's humiliating in the world's eyes, but not in reality. You've got so much more treasure now than you've ever imagined. Now, the, the, the opposite of that humiliation that we're supposed to embrace and glory in is verse 11. Look, look at the, the alternative outcome here. The sun rises with a scorching wind and it withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. 
here is the rock-bottom reality. If you place your hope in the riches of this world, that is every bit as futile and temporary as the life cycle of a flower in the field. When a scorching sun rises, like it's doing right now, here in August, the flower dies and it passes away. It's forgotten. It's like it was never here in the first place. If you root your life in this world, in your status, in your comfort, in your material things, then there is nothing more devastating than this reality. That you can't take it with you. That you will pass away. And in the end, God will not accept your wealth as currency. It will do you no good. So glory in the fact that Jesus brings us low. That's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Jesus strips away your earthly identity and He leads you to His cross. And at the cross, lowly as the cross is in our estimation, at the cross is where the riches of His grace are supreme over all the riches of this world. We can glory in that reality, and we should. Y'all, the... In, in the world's economy, rich and poor are very far apart. One is obviously good and the other is bad, but not in God's economy. In God's economy, the rich person and the poor person are the same. We are equally lost in our sin and equally saved as a free gift of the grace of Jesus. Do you see why... James considers wealth to be a trial. The obvious trial is poverty. Oh, of course, that's a trial. That's a difficult thing. But so is wealth. And wealth is just as dangerous and just as debilitating. Material wealth is an ongoing test of where your real trust and treasure are found. It's an ongoing test. It's an ongoing trial. It's a threat to your faith. Wealth is not in itself a bad thing, but it is a trial. And we can't be um, ignorant of that. Now, can I say, there's one last thing on this, just very practically. If the gospel of Jesus is really this powerful, to esteem and elevate the poor, to humble the rich, the gospel can't just change the way we look at ourselves privately and internally. It has to change the way we view and treat each other here. Uh, as it concerns rich and poor, how do we view and treat each other? Y'all, especially for those of us who are rich, the gospel of Jesus means we cannot look down on the poor. And I know we, lo- we don't like to think that we do this, but it's totally normal, totally natural, it's very human to do this. All of human history has proven this. That those who are wealthy and powerful and comfortable, those who have status in this world, tend to look down on those who don't. And we, get, we, we make all sorts of assumptions about why we're in the position that we're in. Because I'm a hard worker, because I'm wise, because I'm frugal, unlike others who aren't. That's why they're poor and I'm not. And of course, so often that's a ridiculous lie, but we'll convince ourselves of that because it makes us feel superior. And y'all, here's a, an even harder truth. It, it, we may feel pity for the poor, and pity is better than arrogance. We feel sorry for them and for their status, their estate in life. 
But y'all, we have to be careful because even in our sense of pity, we can still hold ourselves as superior. We can still say to our own hearts, I feel sorry for them, but I don't want them in my neighborhood. I feel sorry for them, but I'm not going to get close to them. I'm not going to consider them as equal to me. Y'all, the gospel of Jesus Christ eradicates this sin. There is no place for this in the Christian life. When the Apostle Paul gave instructions, 1 Timothy 6, he said, this is how wealthy Christians ought to live. The first thing Paul said to us is, don't be conceited. Don't be conceited. Don't imagine yourself to be better because of your status, because of your wealth. You're not better. So fix your hope on God instead, because if the gospel is true, that means we all come desperately needy to the cross. Regardless of our station in life, regardless of our esteem in the eyes of the world, we all come to the cross on level ground the very same way. And that means a Christian cannot look down on anyone. Not racially, not economically, you name it, a Christian is not superior to anybody. We are a people desperate for God, saved by grace, a gift we could not earn. We boast in Jesus, not in ourselves. Now, James is going to go to greater lengths to show us this throughout the letter. But here's the simple point for today. We don't uh, feel superior to the poor. We also ultimately don't just pity the poor. That's better, but that's not enough. We honor each other. The Christian ethic is that those who are wealthy honor those who lack the world's goods. And we share together uh, what we have as brothers and sisters. That James calls us brethren. That means family. We honor our family without worldly distinctions. We don't sit in different aisles in the church or attend different churches, one for the rich and one for the poor. No, we share the same grace. We share the same treasure in Jesus Christ. For some of us, it elevates. For others, it humbles. But it brings us to the level ground of the cross where we are all the same and we're meant to live that way. Now, I want you to take a step back with me for a minute. There, there's no easy transition here. We've got to take a step back, bottle up what we just talked about and hold on to it. James is going to give us a, a little conclusion here, a little miniature conclusion in the middle of this chapter. But he's not only thinking about what we just talked about, wealth and poverty. He wants to encompass every trial that he mentioned back in verse 2. So just, just look, at, look at this thing more broadly. Whether this is a financial trial in your life presently, whether it's uh, physical sickness, whether it's besetting sin that you're struggling with, whatever your trial may be in this present moment, James wants to issue a little conclusion. It's not little, actually, it's huge. But he wants to show us what it is to faithfully endure trials, the, the outcome that awaits us, something that we look ahead to here. So it applies to what we're talking about in verses 9, 10, and 11, but it also applies to all trials. And I want you to look at the, the, um, the, the wonderful promise here that covers your life, that covers all trials. Um, and my hope is that we'll, we'll memorize a verse like this, that we'll really 
establish this as a foundational truth and promise for life. Verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, or woman. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, that's a great verse, but you know what James is probably doing right here? He's probably intentionally echoing the words of Jesus. This is, James gives us what is essentially a beatitude, something Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gave us what we call beatitudes, statements of blessing. Uh, let me give you one that, that I think James is probably basing his off of right here. This is Matthew 5.11. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, James is echoing Jesus, I think, right here, but he's broadening the application. He's talking not just about the trial of persecution, but trials that encompass all of life, every trial. And James says, blessed are you when you persevere under trial. Now, this is not just common everyday perseverance where we grit our teeth and push through a situation. This is, this is the perseverance of faith that we're talking about. This is the exercise of faith. When trials come, we run to God. We pray to God for wisdom and grace and strength. Prayer is our first thought, not our last resort. We renew our trust in Jesus and our confidence in His grace. We walk in faith. We walk in obedience through our hardships. That's what it means to persevere in faith. Now, that's easier said than done, of course. But that's why James calls it perseverance. James, he, he doesn't sugarcoat this to give us the impression that, that trials are supposed to be easy. No, he says this is difficult. You have to push through. It takes long and difficult days of walking faithfully with God through your life. The image really is, is of an athlete who's straining to finish a marathon, pushing, cramping up, fighting through to get to the end. Y'all, James, just be clear on this. James gives no illusions that this is supposed to be easy, to persevere under trial. No, this is difficult. And that's why I want to encourage us to, to, be, you know, to be mindful of this. James, the promise here is not for people who just feel religious feelings. Um, so often we might just feel religious sentiment on occasion uh, and think that maybe that's sufficient to be a spiritual person. That's not what James has in mind. He's talking about real faith that exercises. The exercise of faith in Jesus. And this is big for James really all throughout the letter. We'll see it time and again. Religious feelings are not enough. Religious feelings are not the same as real faith because real faith is not something that we just ponder from the sidelines. Real faith is exercise. Real faith shows up in the real stuff of life. And real faith is rewarded. Do you see that in verse 12? What is the blessing for the Christian who perseveres? Once you have been approved, which means God has considered you faithful, you 
will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, you, you might be like me. When you hear crown of life, you're picturing a king's crown. Big, heavy, golden crown studded with jewels. That might be what James has in mind. Uh, my sense is that James really is, is envisioning more the athlete's crown. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, the victorious athletes would receive a crown. It was really a wreath on their head. You, you may have seen statues, busts of Caesar artwork where there's a wreath on, on the head. Um, I think that's more what James has in mind when, he, when he's thinking about the crown of life. Uh, the Apostle Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians, I think verse, uh, chapter 9. Paul said, we have, as Christians, we have an imperishable wreath, an eternal, uh, unfading crown. Speaking of the athlete's wreath. Now, now what does that mean? Well, if, if James is talking about that type of wreath, that type of crown, he's talking really more about more than just salvation. We are saved by trusting Jesus for his free grace. We contribute nothing to that. That's salvation. But to live as a Christian in this world, to persevere by faith, there's a promised outcome. That's not a zero-sum game that you push through uh, you know, and, and you just you you depend on your salvation, and 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 it's like it. You know, it's like the perseverance never happened. No, there's a promised outcome for faithful endurance. There's a reward. James doesn't tell us what the reward is. He just calls it the crown of life. Jesus didn't tell us what the reward was either. What I just quoted from Matthew five, he just says your reward in heaven will be great. But what we can know, regardless of what the reward actually is, how it plays itself out, what we know is that God is faithful to honor those who bless Him, those who are faithful to Him, those who endure with Him. God is faithful to bless, to honor, to reward the Christian who walks this life by faith. So how do we get to that place? You, you may be of the mind right now that, that life is incredibly difficult and you can't see yourself enduring to the end. You can't see yourself growing in faith and being perfected as James promises in chapter 1. This seems very, very difficult to you and it's meant to be, right? It's meant to feel beyond us. Well, the motivation, what keeps us going, what cranks the engine and keeps us moving is actually given to us at the end of verse 12. You will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. There's your motivation. And it seems so simple. It almost seems too simple. God has promised this reward to those who love Him. So what is our truest and deepest motivation? What, what, what is it that gives you the strength to endure every trial and not be crushed by the circumstances of life? It is a deep and abiding love for God. It is the love for God that surges through the heart, that strengthens us and pushes us beyond what we are capable of. When the world threatens to crush us, when our faith is tested and tried, it is our love and affection for Jesus that continually pushes us through. And can I, I as we close, I want to encourage you in this. Because I know, you're, I'm sure that you're just like me, 
My love for God today is not what it should be, is not what it could be. I do not love God enough right here where I stand. And I just need to be honest. And I'm sure you don't either. We don't love God as much as we possibly could. But this kind of love, love for God, that motivates endurance, this love can't be manufactured. You can't create this within yourself as an act of your will. This kind of love, a growing love, an enduring love, it's a response. It's a response to who God has revealed himself to be. It's a response to how God has loved you. This is, this is shown to us wonderfully in 1 John chapter 4. John says this. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see what's going on right there? It's not that we loved God. It's not that we came to God. It's not that we get to boast in our love for God. No, but the first thing is God's love for us. God loves first. And God loves without condition. For God to love you first means that God loved you when you were at your very worst before you ever inclined your heart to Him, before you ever cleaned your act up, before you ever did anything good at all, God loved you without condition, an inexhaustible, perfect, divine love. And that love manifests, it shows itself how, that He sent His Son. You know what that means? We're talking today about loving God by enduring trials. God so loved you that he endured the greatest trial on your behalf. God endures trial. We see it at the cross. Jesus bore a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He himself endured the greatest of all trials, motivated by love. And so your love for Him, a love that strengthens, a love that perseveres, it's a response to the amazing love you've already been given. You don't have to manufacture this. If God loved you first, if God loved you without condition, if God endured trial for you, a trial that we can't even imagine, then now all of life, our life, what a small thing, if we give our whole lives to Him in response if we love Him and endure with Jesus Christ in response. Y'all, to love Jesus, to glory in Jesus, to persevere for His sake, this is what it means to exercise faith. That when life gets hard, we get purified because we bear up under our trials. fixated on Him, standing firmly upon Him. Now, we're going to sing a song here in a moment that fits so well with this, that when when life is difficult, when things are against us, when we recognize our inability to bear up under this apart from Him, then we cling to the old rugged cross. We cling to Jesus. And the song says, we will one day, we will exchange that cross for a crown. Isn't that exactly what James says? We'll exchange the cross one day for a crown.
the reward of God for those who lovingly persevere through the trials of life. Let's pray.